Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me in another episode of the Right Way Podcast program. It is me, your host, Samuel Elliott. And today's guest I spoke to was a former policeman and investigator, private investigator turned journalist, turned book writer, Duncan McNabb. Duncan McNabb has written several books, a slew of books, uh, all of them pertaining to Australian Australian true crime or the goings-on of Australian nonfiction. One of them, a uh, standout that I'm keen to read that I haven't actually got my hands on yet, is about Roger the Dodger Rogerson, Roger Rogerson, disgraced former Sydney police detective. Um, but the book in which I talked to Duncan McNabb about is his latest, uh, out with Pam McMillan, The Ruby Princess, Specifically, The Ruby Princess, The Truth Behind the 21st Century Plague Ship, How Negligence and Corporate Greed Led to Death and Disaster. That's why the people that design those book covers get the, paid the big bucks, because they really managed to kind of surmise the, the entirety of a book's discourse or argument within you know one sentence. So that's very apt there. So basically, Duncan has written this book about the Ruby Princess. For those not in the know, that was the ill-fated voyage, 2700-person uh, ill-fated voyage that came into docked in Sydney, in uh, ye old Sydney town, uh, with that was rife with people that were infected with COVID-19, which was underreported. There were swabs that were taken that weren't properly tested, not even, nor were they tested that night. Uh, people were disembarked, they were given the all clear, started going off to various in- international people, started going off to various different uh, respective homelands via medium of different, me- a myriad of different methods, obviously some catching planes, others going back interstate, only to then find out that they had COVID-19. In many of the cases, uh, some of them found out from news outlets on the television. I think uh, people said, I think the way Duncan worded it was something like, people found out from their televisions rather than phone calls or anything like that. So what Duncan has here, this is an exhaustively researched uh, expose into how that came to be. So he not only uh, expertly kind of does that in terms of uh, minute by minute, arrival of the Ruby Princess, but also the backstory for the Ruby Princess and how it sort of got to that point, as well as the precedent of the Diamond Princess, which uh, ill-fated, similarly ill-fated voyage, but was handled much more better, much better by the Japanese government when it was docked in Yokohama. Uh, even then, that was, that was still kind of a catastrophe. But he also, Duncan also traces the history of uh, luxury cruising uh, and then going into Carnival, Carnival, uh, the international... Uh, incredibly successful, highly lucrative, billions billions of dollars of profit per year uh, con- uh, consortium, their organization there. Uh, uh, one particular point I liked that was mentioned was that um, the CEO, who was the son of the founder of Carnival, Mickey Aronson, I believe his name is, uh, awarded himself a $90 million bonus during the year of the Oceana disaster, which was the uh, it was Oceano Concordia. The, anyway, it was the, the Italian cruise ship that was uh, a part of their liner, part of their fleet that uh, ran aground and dozens of people died and the captain was off the ship before most of the passengers were. So awarded himself $90 million uh, bonus that year. So that's in addition to his salary. So that's a, that's a very generous bonus. And I think that that was a really good way of highlighting the kind of uh, culture that was going on with this giant company. But anyway... I digress. So please, everyone, give a big welcome to Duncan McNabb discussing with me his book, The Ruby Princess. Duncan McNabb, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast program this cold, bitterly cold evening. How are you going tonight? Mate, and even better in Sydney, it's also raining just to add to it. 
Did you say you're in Sydney and it's raining? Yep. Oh, okay. Um, it's, it's not, it's, well, I've got my blinds drawn, but I don't think it's raining over here, but it is bitterly cold in ye old Alexandria. Uh, and across, it's nice and moist. <laughs> there we go. Duncan, what I wanted to start with is I want to know how you became involved in this because it's one thing that's sort of stood out to me early on is I'm always really interested when it's and this sort of uh, developing as it's still <laughs> developing story and uh, where you kind of joined in from there. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Tell listeners about that. Um, I joined in literally oh, in about the last week of March. The story had been captivating everybody, of course, um, probably bettered by those remarkable television grabs of this gigantic, beautiful white liner parked in Sydney Harbour with the bridge on one side, the harbour, the opera house on the other side, and 2,700 people getting off as fast as possible. Possibly some said they were being herded off like sheep. So you've got that picture well and truly in your mind on a glorious early autumn afternoon. Um, I was doing some work at Channel 7 at that stage as their crime editor. And I was looking at the story and the story started to break. Um, and then a mate at Seven started to do a very fast turnaround documentary on it. And he and I have worked together on a number of series over the years. He invited me to come down and give him a hand because it was, um, I think we started on the Tuesday and went to air on the Sunday night and putting together an hour's worth of television in six or seven days is interesting. Um, and in putting the story together, of course, we we're just pretty much going what the news was at the time and getting a couple of solid breaks in the story as well. What I found was that there's so much developing stuff, the deeper story of the crew, um, the reputation and history of the uh, cruise liners and so on, that was sitting in the background and possibly the most striking part that we didn't have time to really go into because it was pretty brand new then, was the number of ships owned by Carnival and other lines around the world that had found themselves in a deep pickle with COVID-19 prior to the Ruby Princess sailing. So that story really got my attention. And when you're looking at doing a book or something, rather you or a long or a TV series or some such, you actually see whether or not the story has the length to go the full distance. And in the case of the Ruby Princess, with my interest piqued by a fast turnaround documentary, um, I knew with about a couple of weeks' worth of uh, research on top of that that I had a really solid book. Um, and I got some, as in the case of all books, you just meet these remarkable people who want to tell you their stories, who want to help you, who want to make sure that the story is told to a broader audience. And that's how The Ruby Princess left for me. How did you um, go about collating all the information? Because I looked at the acknowledgements and there's a lot of... Um people that you thank on various assortments of news outlets and, and individual yep. organizations. So was that information being fed to you at the time or did that kind of come about later? How, how did that all go about? No, about later. This is curious enough, the first book I've ever written that I was pretty much unable to leave the house for quite some time to write because normally when you write a book, it's hands on, yeah. very hands on. You're writing a book about a certain place, for example. I feel it's incumbent upon me as a writer to go and have a look at the joint, which is why you always pitch places you'd like to go to rather than places you're not all that sure about. Um, but most of it was just really digging um, through huge amounts of time on the internet um, and then tracking down experts and doing shitloads of Zoom calls um, and some interesting WhatsApp messaging and so on and so forth. It depends on the level of confidentiality that people want. Uh, people, for example, who were working in the cruise industry mm. were happy 
give me a hand, but uh, they wanted a career after we get back on, get back traveling again. So, you know, that's very sensible of them. Yeah. yeah. So basically a lot of time tapping and looking at a screen. Yeah. Look, um, Duncan, you mentioned it just then, you touched on it. One of the parts I found the most fascinating was the history of, of cruising, of, of luxury cruise liners, because I didn't know anything about that. Um, so it kind of started off, you know, with sort of humble beginnings. I think it was one wealthy um, Israeli-born person, and then they teamed up for Russian or something like that, and they went from, went from cargo containers or something. I'm getting my history yeah. a little bit mixed up there. Yep. The, the wealthy uh, Israeli-born bloke is, in fact, the Aris the Arison family, um, and his son is now, I think, still chairman of Carnival Cruises. Mickey. He, yeah, Mickey. Yeah. So his dad started it all way back in the early 60s and realised that there was a market not only for cruising, uh, reasonably luxurious, but also for getting people on board ships and selling them everything you can lay your hands on. Um, it's not, I suppose, uh, it's a curious thing about airlines too. Um, if you're flying a Boeing 747 from Los Angeles to Sydney, mates in the airline industry tell me that passengers are just icing on the top of the cake because the, the, the freight pays for the aircraft maintenance operation. Likewise, with a cruise ship, they've got a captive market. They put it on at a very competitive price sometimes. Um, and people spend, they enjoy themselves. Uh, people who love cruising also like shopping, they like drinking, they like nightclubs, they like casinos and all that sort of thing. And it's a remarkable business. It's value-added and it's incredibly profitable. Mm. Um, I suppose just as I, I remember this after I'd written the book, I have only ever been on an ocean liner once. Um, it's an experience I wouldn't choose to repeat, and that's before I wrote the book. Um, seven days across the Atlantic and I was thinking I could swim looking for a U-boat or hoping, hoping for an iceberg. Um, but the oddity is when you get off, when you get on board a boat, they, the first thing they do is they take your credit card and they give you a sort of uh, tag thing to use mm. as currency. On. I got off in New York after being incredibly unimpressed with the Statue of Liberty, bloody small, seven days to get that, whatever, um, and found that my bar bill, and I wasn't exactly rolling around the floors, but my bar bill was pretty much about half the prices, I recall, of my entire uh, passage across from London. So there's a, there's a few bucks to be made on board. Mm, mm, absolutely. Um, I thought one of the, the more interesting parts was one of those those first luxury cruises, the debut or its maiden voyage was they, there was the myth that the alcohol was being bought for with the tills from something or something else. It was like robbing Peter to pay Paul because that's how desperate they were. Yeah, it's a fabulous story. But bottom line is the original carnival lines, they, they literally left on the smell, the smell of an oily rag. They were paying their bath, sorry, their booze was being paid for on a credit card. They were trying to get credit cards or, or credit to pay for fuel on board. And I think at one stage, they also had some of the uh, crew, or the uh, tradesmen who were converting the ship into something more usable. They were still on board with their hammers and tools banging away as the ship sailed off merrily. So yeah, it started on the smell of an oily rag, and it's yeah, it's an incredible success story in fifty years. I mean, it is one yeah. of the world's most significant companies, uh, a billion, multiple billion dollars a year business. Uh, they've done well. It's a it's a formula that worked beautifully. Well, I liked the one of the mentions that you had, and it was such a disparate contrast of how far they've come from from those really humble beginnings of the smell of the oily rag, um, the Concord, the year of the Concordia disaster. Mickey Aronson awarded himself a $90 million bonus for that year. Something, something to that yeah. effect. 
Yeah, nice money if you can get it, really. Probably pays yeah. for his tea, tea off fees at Mario Lago with Donald. But, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, it's not a bad little business. 90 million, yeah. Yeah, you wouldn't be too keen to have the shares at this point. But back in the day, it was a remarkably profitable business and incredibly well run as well. Mm. Talk a little bit about some of the... Because there was already... Um, a dark side, uh, an underbelly to to the cruising industry far before this sort of ever happened with cases of dumping of bilge water, dumping of tons of sort of single-use plastic items, um, constantly um, running afoul and finding themselves or kind of finding yeah. themselves within like international courts and continuing to do so and then claiming we're sort of doing lip service and saying we're doing our best. So there was also this sort of culture that you kind of commented on. Tell me a little bit about yeah. that, Duncan. Yeah, Carnival, and other cruise lines do it as well, I suspect, as well, but Carnival is a repeat offender. Mm. Um, They drop, it's something called grey water, which is just basically crap from the boat. Um, And even things like leftover plastics, I think in in some pristine waters, they were finding things like the the umbrella from your cocktail. Mm. When you finish the cocktail, it's thrown out. And they were just dumping this shit overboard. And they were doing so in pristine places where the cruising should be a privilege, you know, places like up around Alaska and in certainly in parts of the Caribbean. This is the sort of crap that is incredibly destructive to the environment. Um, they're also a bit devious. And there was one incident where they were pumping some crap overboard and they knew the inspectors were coming on board, so they made sure they couldn't see it. There's a, there was a culture of not only doing it, but also being in front of, in front of the inspectors so you could cover it up. So quite, you know, I think pretty seedy practice. Um, they, they ended up being prosecuted for it on a couple of occasions. Um, I think the last time they were in court, their fine was 40 million bucks, which I suppose when you're getting, when the boss is getting 90 million bucks bonus a year, 40 million is not going to really hurt them that much. Um, and then they were hauled back into court again because repeatedly they found that, yeah, oh yes, we've changed our culture. Yes, everything's fixed. Everything's all right, which is rubbish. Um, the judge um, quite a feisty judge by the sound of it, who'd been on a cruise before and admitted how much she loved the luxury, was, according to a judgment, quite appalled. And she said of Carnival something that was a quite little one-liner, you know, they talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. So they copped a $40 million fine. I think the subsequent fine was $20 bucks. And at the time the coronavirus hit the world, they were due to go back into court. And I don't think they'd quite got back in yet to... At one stage, I think Mickey Arison and his some of his executives were called to court and giving a thorough dressing down. So they've said everything's going to be sweet. But I suspect the judge will be watching closely when cruising resumes to make sure that they have learned their lesson because it was obvious over the last couple of years that they hadn't. They were just paying lip service to it. So it's, um, it, it's something that I find very troubling, and particularly as cruise liners do have access and part of their sales pitch is to take you into these extraordinary places like you know, Ruby Princess, for example. First stop in New Zealand on its last cruise was wandering up the uh, Milford Sound. Mm. The, last thing, the last thing you want is the shores strewn with cocktail umbrellas and dirty water pissing out and upsetting marine wildlife. Um, they need to be better corporate citizens. Yeah, absolutely. Look, um. Related to that, the way I what I kind of took away from from that from that part of the, the section of the novel, which kind of served as a precursor to to getting into the nitty gritty of the actual River Princess, was that it was just yep. this kind of uh, monolithic titan sort of organisation that was fueled purely by avarice, greed, and and money. So, and there was a history of cover ups and this sort of uh, enforcing this culture of silence. That's kind of what I took from it. 
Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's not an organisation in my dealings with Carnival that was terribly receptive to journalist inquiries either. They tend to communicate by their own YouTube channel, by the look of it. So yeah. if they refer you on to a chief executive or whatever he happens to be, giving this spiel on YouTube, um, if you want to have a conversation, that becomes somewhat difficult. Um, I find it a somewhat troubling method of communication. It's missive rather than conversation. Yeah, and I mean... You kind of also make this point about how these repeat offences or lack failing to failing to learn, and I think that you kind of also then underline that with with the the case of the Diamond Princess, which obviously was was then quarantined or stationed at Yokohama for however long, and that was in itself kind of disastrous, but but marginally uh, substantially better than what happened with the Rude Princess, is that they then uh, Carnival failed to kind of. Um, learn all the learnings, take in the learnings of, of the Diamond Princess or what that potentially could have offered. Can you talk a little bit about that, Duncan? Yeah, I think they had, it was, that was the thing that actually struck me as being quite weird. They had this strange notion in part, I think it was a strange notion anyway, in part supported by what was then state-of-the-art information from the Centre for Disease Control in Atlanta, the big US organisation. And combined with all that state-of-the-art information, plus and they make a point of this, and I think it's worth remembering, plus their own knowledge. I mean, these guys have been running cruise ships for a lot of years. The cruise industry regularly has virus outbreaks on board. It's something you have to be extraordinarily careful about. Um, the outbreaks of the norovirus, for example, which will go through the ship very, very quickly. And whilst it's not fatal, it has some very unpleasant consequences, shall we say. Um, so... This vast amount of knowledge about how ships operate and how virus spread in that tight environment, um, you'd reckon that when you've got a ship in dire straits in Yokohama, the Diamond Princess, um, likewise, the Grand Princess sailing off from San Francisco, merely towards Hawaii, around not long after the Diamond Princess debacle is resolving, um, that's at sea, yet someone thinks, well... The disease hasn't got to Australia yet, so it's sweet. We're pretty safe. Mm. I, my view is that they rolled the dice. They didn't deliberately try to endanger anybody, but the, they looked at it and thought, well, it hasn't got to Australia yet. Things are all very, very sweet. It's on the other side of the equator. Let's go. Mm. And found out is when the review princess was at sea that that was a pretty shit-out decision. Yeah. Um, uh, and the Ruby princess, too, to make it even more complicated, has people on board who have come in from the US. The US is obviously having some serious problems at that point. The problems are spreading. We had people coming in from overseas, getting on board, mingling with local passengers. There is a probability, I think this is, for me, it just makes sense, that someone on the crew, possibly in the kitchen, which is where the stuff really starts spreading. Um, someone in the kitchen stuff may have come in from overseas, may have contracted it on an earlier cruise. We don't know, we'll never know. Um, and the thing turned the ship into a viral hotspot. Um, none of this would have happened had Carnival in the lead up to the cruise, instead of reassuring passengers that everything was sweet. And there are a lot of people I've spoken to were concerned. They did contact the line. They were reassured by people often they've dealt with before. These are regular cruises. There is a level of trust. Um, and they've taken what the cruise company has said on face value. One person told me that uh, the other compelling reason for travelling from the US was that Carnival also said, we're not going to give you any refunds. Mm. So they think, you know, so the 
the passengers have also rolled the dice themselves. Mm. They trust these people. We've been with them before. They reckon it's safe. We're not going to get our money back either. So, yeah, let's give it a run. We've trusted them. And unfortunately, that was wrong. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, it is definitely um, passengers taking a roll of the dice as well. There was a good yeah. uh, term in it that you used. I, I don't know if you, if you coined it, if you did, then you should probably patent it. But um, the mushroom treatment of keeping, keeping passengers in the dark and feeding them shit. Yeah, that's a very old New South Wales police expression. Um, yeah, yeah, the old mushroom. It's something I remember from my misspent youth as a copper. The mushroom. A fairly red comment, which you're referring to our hierarchy. Um, and it's true. And I suppose the idea, the laudable side of um, keeping the passengers in the dark is I don't want to panic them. But if I'm on board a boat and Stripe is coming my way, um, I'd like to know exactly what the circumstances are and how we're going to deal with it. You know, don't treat me like an idiot. Tell me I'm an adult. I can come to grips with it. I don't think the ship would be full of people running around screaming in blind panic like one of the like flying high movie or something or other. People, but people need to be properly informed. They need to have the capacity to make their decisions wisely and based on sound information. And in the cruising business, when all this started happening, that wasn't common either. Uh, it was a really pretty bloody ordinary attempt at crisis management, I think. Um, and you, you, YouTube videos and occasional stirring messages from the captain don't quite cut the mustard. Look, tell me, because you, you kind of, what you just said sort of dovetails nicely into the next question, because I feel like in the lead up to the Rude Princess redocking or returning, there was, you know, necessary parties, various bodies were communicating to each other, but failing to do so, so properly. So I wanted you to talk a little bit about that, because I feel like that's kind of ultimately what culminated in the swabs uh, being underreported, the, the test and the amount that was then registered was changed yeah. later the yeah. eye security information. Yeah, but you go a little bit on that, Duncan. It's, well, I suppose the decision to sail the ship was the worst possible decision they could have made. Mm. But when ships coming back into Sydney, everything else also gets stuffed up. I mean, these, these are decisions made and they, they try to do the right thing, but it all gets, it's all a mess. Mm. And that's when the ship comes back into Sydney fundamental communication there is dreadful word communication but you know if you don't talk to people and you don't update your information you're in for a shit fight and that's precisely what happened in sydney to cut through and there was a lot of blaming and finger pointing all this sort of jazz mm. after in the or so afterwards which i found a bit tiresome to be honest um the bottom line is the tick the tick for the boat to dock in sydney and also let passengers off comes down to delegated it's a biosecurity issue border force look after passports and all that sort of junk and they can hold the boat off until all that's sorted um the actual decision to let it comes in to when it comes in to let people off is the biosecurity decision which comes down delegated from the commonwealth straight to the state the state actually have to make that decision new south wales health in this case and it would be would have been possibly a different story um if the information on which that decision, is it low risk, is it medium risk, or is it high risk? It would be really helpful if that decision was made on current information. Mm. But that's, that's where the pickle started on this. The information that the ship docks at whatever it was, two o'clock in the morning. But the decision to bring it in as a low risk ship, which meant people can just get off and go home, that was made earlier that earlier in the prior day. So the day leading up to the early morning docking. 
New South Wales Health have made their decisions based on the information provided from the ship. Yet by the time the ship had arrived, that information was way out of date and it had an escalating medical problem on board. Um, so, and no one bothered to check up. And what we saw in the Commission of Inquiry, we just went through this in great detail. The simple point was the New South Wales health people where you know, everyone's very stressed, complicated, blah, 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 that sort of stuff. New South Wales Health hadn't gone back to the Ruby Princess and said, hey, what's happening now as it's coming into the harbour? So they could make a decision based on current information. They didn't do that. They forgot to. Um, on board the Ruby Princess, they're getting people coming in. Obviously, problems are getting escalating quickly. The doctor on board the Ruby Princess also didn't think to tell South Wales Health that there's an escalating problem on board. And I think I may have this wrong. I think she said something like, I forgot to tell them I had the email ready to go, but I was too busy. Mm. Uh, it's a curiosity too, and I can't remember the exact stat, but I remember researching it, is that per capita, um, the medical team on board is far lower than you'd get in a normal suburb in Australia, for example. So that makes it a really complex issue for them as well, um, particularly as most of the cruisers on board are in that older age bracket, so they have higher medical demands as well. So there's an accident looking for somewhere to happen just in that small detail. So the rubies come in, the problem is going up dramatically. People are reporting to sick bay, they've started to get symptoms left, right and centre. Yet the ship comes in and docks as low risk. It shouldn't have. It should have been a higher risk category. Mm. The, and the curiosity, which always the sad irony in this is when the Ruby Princess had come in on the 8th of March on the last cruise before this disastrous one, it had been at a higher risk level. They'd actually kept passengers on board until they waited for the COVID-19 test to come back. Then they give the given the place a good scrub and turned around and gone out again. Likewise, around about the same time in Melbourne, I think it was another Carnival cruise line uh, ship, yeah, had come into, um, come into Port Phillip Bay. They had concerns about it, so it had been held off until the COVID-19 tests had come back. Mm. So all that way it should, and that's, you know, the sensible, the best, best system. Ruby Princess, a comedy of errors happened that night, and the result was, in the wee small hours of the morning, 2,700 people jump out into Sydney. It's actually dropped about 2 o'clock. By the time they'd done their bits and pieces, it was almost morning peak hour. Those people hit buses, trains, cabs, and a lot of them, 600 or so people, headed out to the airport. So you've got this massive smattering of people. Um, and the other great problem was, of course, they, the COVID-19 tests from the people they were very concerned about aren't processed before mm. these people get out. They're not processed that day. Mm. In fact, we don't get results until the next morning, about 36 hours later or thereabouts. And at 36 hours later, New South Wales Health thinks, mm. we have a problem and it's a whopper. But by that stage, the international tourists are substantially back home. Um, the Australian tourists from all around the countryside have dispersed, they're all back home. And people are getting very, very worried very quickly, which is where the contract contact tracing tracing came in fortunately new south wales is pretty good at it although um i think one woman in ottawa i spoke to said that she got her first call from the abc and her second call from new south wales health not long afterwards so and that's how this happened and again it was just well-intentioned people just getting it wrong crappy communication mm. nothing detailed that night it should have run like very smoothly but it didn't that night was just a mess 
Yeah, biggest belief. There were so many things that I kind of um, read during reading your book, and I just my eyes were like popping out of my skull as to how they happened. Yeah. Like, just these sort of sentences where it's like 240 people were symptomatic at the time. Um, because uh, Carnival hadn't adequately prepared, there wasn't really any swabs anyway on board, or certainly not for the amount that they were needed or presented with. Um, and yeah, the test results and how they weren't even conducted that day. And, you know, I think that someone chased up them saying what's going on with them. And they said, we'll do them for you and we'll have them overnight and they'll be available tomorrow morning. And yep. then various different passengers um, getting phone, either phone calls at airport saying, stay where you are. Uh, you're, you're positive yeah. uh, or finding out information, not from, not from New South Wales health or from carnival, but finding yeah. it out on a television. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that poor couple who got, I think they were flying back to Hobart from memory and they got as far as the airport. They're standing there and literally they're told on the spot, stand there, don't go anywhere. We'll have someone with you immediately. I mean, geez, what an end to a trip that is. Um, and, for, and, you know, and Tasmania became, I think one of our first, major messes in this entire debacle when some Ruby Princess passengers had got back there to northwest Tasmania and that all went to hell in a handbasket quickly and all of a sudden you had the biggest hospital in northwest Tasmania closed down because COVID-19 sweeping through it. And again, the hospital wasn't, was, wasn't really up to the task of looking up the patients as well, which is why it ripped through the joint. And I think mm -hmm. at one stage there were 4,000 people in isolation for 14 days in a, a relatively small part of Australia. Yes, yeah, quite just quite extraordinary. What and was um, Yeah, sorry, Duncan, you were going to say no, that's before we got nursing home issues for other reasons in New South Wales. So yeah, it's quite it's absolutely terrifying. It is terrifying. There is something I wanted to touch on there that you mentioned too, but I wanted you to kind of maybe talk a little bit about as well what um, Carnival's official response was. I don't know how to pronounce the fellow's name, but Stur Miramel. Yes, true. official YouTube yeah. response or. or yeah, uh, there's a sort of along the line of we've done the best we can and we're terribly upset that people are upset with us and it's really unreasonable. And I thought, oh, give it a break, mate. Um, he was very reluctant to talk to anybody. In fact, when we were doing the documentary, uh, we tried to get someone from Carnival to talk and they just flatly refused. They referred us to their YouTube quotes, which probably wasn't a great idea because they had a lot of them online and some of them sort of levels of ignorance. Uh, and levels of spin, you thought, this is just really not a way to connect with people. It doesn't work that way. But I think Stuart was, um, I may be mispronouncing him as well, I think he was pinged by a young journalist one morning in his car park that been sitting off him for a while for the, um, the abrupt doorstop interview. And he wasn't very pleased. But I think try at, at one stage, one of the YouTube outings was to actually almost paint Carnival as a victim in all this as well. <laughs> Um, try to play the warring governments off against each other and have Carnival in the middle as an innocent, as a wounded party as well. And I don't think that was terribly clever. Um, you know, we're the problem. Um, and we've now got massive lawsuits running in Australia and in the US. Um, you think you actually might want to try and settle it by being compassionate, smart, get in front of the problem rather than protracting it. I know we never like to admit we've stuffed up particularly the corporate level. But I'd be refreshed if a corporation said, yeah, we did stuff up, let's get it fixed. But that's not going to be the case. And that seems to have been that sort of uh, old square leg defence a lot of corporates play. And I think that's what Carnival are doing as well. So it, it's nice to have the chief executive or whatever he happens to be saying, oh, yes, we've done the best we can. And oh, yeah, isn't it awful how we're being picked on? Um, 
it's awful for the poor crew on board. But at a corporate level, I think they just needed to do a hell of a lot better. I mean, fair a thought for the poor people that spend their entire life below the waterline trying to make passengers happy and the line profitable. Fair time for the officers and the crew up on deck who make sure that the ship gets safely to and from its ports. Um, my level of compassion for the executives, one, of course, who made $90 million in the bonus, isn't that high. Tell me a little bit about the crew, because thereafter, I think that the Ruby Princess was then stationed or kind of uh, secreted at uh, Port Kembla. So tell me a little bit about what, what they would have been subjected to with that sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, and the, the story of the crew was also something that really fascinates me, because mm. these everyone's unloaded that on the morning. They wave goodbye to them all. I mean, these people substantially live below water level. They live in quarters that can cramp. They're not particularly stylish. The elegance on the other side of the door um, is remarkable, but they walk back into a very utilitarian space. You know, mm. They've got breakfast, dining and all that sort of stuff. One bloke told me that food was appalling um, and it's just cramped, cramped, smelly and a bit messy and all that sort of stuff, depending on who you bunk with. Potluck, basically. Um, a bit like going to prison, I suppose. Um, so these poor buggers are down there. They've got rid of everybody. They've got a clean bill of health because New South Wales health haven't come back with the COVID-19 swabs. So in the afternoon, they arrive at 2am, ships reprovision, get ready to go to sea. Then They know they won't be sailing anywhere for a while because cruises have been cancelled. So that afternoon, she cruises out of Sydney, looking magnificent as usual, out through the heads. A crew on board, about 1,200 people or so, all thinking, this is great. This for the first time in so long, we can enjoy the ship ourselves. We can have a party on the deck. We can get drunk. We can have a great time. Um, because just as a curiosity, the crew on these things have a very tight turnaround. One bloke I spoke to said, I came on board so I could see the world. And he said, all I see is a couple of hours because the thing turns around so bloody fast. Um, oh. So these people are having a ball. I think there are some videos online and everyone is having a great time until the next day when they get the bad news that the COVID-free ship isn't COVID-free, mm. that there's a problem on board and there's a problem with passengers. So they go from the elation of the first time they can have a holiday, they're now sort of looking furtively around the place wondering who's going to cough first. Um, the response to that, she's off Sydney harbour for a couple of days, I think, and there's one smart aleck in a newsroom got a particularly nice shot filming the Ruby Princess off Bronte looking through the headstones at the cemetery, which I thought was particularly great. It's a great shot and um, the cameraman really serves. A lot of praise for that. I don't know. Like, uh, some, someone working in news would think that's a great shot, mate, well done. But and that sort of set the tone. All of a sudden, this beautiful liner is now on the horizon with a few other beautiful liners waiting to see what happens. The result and solution was, you know, I think the New South Wales police had the view that the sooner they got out of Australian waters, better, blah, blah, blah. So there's all this toing and froing. Um, eventually, the Ruby Princess is allowed to come into port so it can get primarily some good medical treatment and get reprovisioned. Um, and it's brought into Port Kembla, a decision that no one seems to quite understand other, other than perhaps the out-of-sight, out-of-mind decision because they parked near some silos in the hope that I, I suspect no one would notice that much. Why they took it to down to Wollongong baffles me. It's 
away from major hospitals. About the only reason to think of, they took the pragmatic view that if people are going to start getting sick, they won't get sick in the middle of a big city, they'll get sick in the middle of a smaller city. The logic defeats me. Um, and they're sitting on board waiting to see what's going to happen. There's political to and fro. The government, the New South Wales police have a certain view. The Australian government is sort of playing to and fro, all this sort of stuff. Um, their own governments aren't are pretty much powerless to help them. Um, there's, it's like a, it's a League of Nations on board as well. Um, so they're just sitting there waiting, wondering what the hell's going to happen to them. Will they be repatriated from Australia? Not looking very likely at one stage. Will the ship sail on somewhere else in the world? Um, will people start dying on board? Start mm. dying on board because you know people are getting sicker and sicker, and faster and faster. Um, and the ship, as we know from the Diamond Princess, is a particularly good spot to spread disease. Uh, quarantining mm. on board is a great idea. Um, so that's all going ahead. And finally, finally, and, and support from the locals was great, by the way. I think the local Wollongong residents were a bit apprehensive about having this thing parked in their back door. Um, but what was lovely to hear from some of the crew is that they're they're on board, they're terrified, they don't know what's going to happen next, they think they're going to get sick. Um, they're talking to their families on FaceTime and WhatsApp and all that sort of stuff. They can't get back to them. They don't know what their fate is. Um, they got a lot of cheer from the Wollongong residents and they were there over Easter and all of a sudden, I think the Siemens Union and a lot of the locals are starting to turn up with Easter eggs. Just simple things like that to let them know that people actually do give rats about their fate. It's quite lovely. And that boosted morale enormously on board. And they were doing... One curiosity was one of the uh, crew I talked to said they were allowed to move up from the bowels of the ship and start in cabins to separate them more. But there was allegedly an instruction from Carnival Corporate that around about in time for the uh, evening news bulletins, they were all to go outside and wave merrily from their cabins. This is not that bad, you know, do a big PR route. Um, the crew weren't very pleased with that. They did it because... What else are they going to do? Their livelihood. It's their home, albeit for sure, possibly for a short time. So they towed the corporate line politely, but no one was very happy about it. Smiling. It's not as bad as you look. Then they're ringing journalists and talk. we're talking to them and we're getting a very different story, how dangerous it is on board, how miserable they are, the mental health issues along for the physical health issues. And the great moment of relief when finally they let people off. They're repatriating the sick off immediately, those who can't be treated on board. But then they're taking tranches of crew members who are not testing positive and they're repatriating. They're taking Sydney Airport, for example, fairly quickly, large plane loads flying home. One of the blokes I spoke to, he'd, uh, they'd brought him to Sydney. Uh, he, they'd put him in the Sheraton on the park. He'd just ordered uh, oysters, a bottle of champagne and was running a bath when a couple of coppers in hazmat arrived and said, congratulations, mate, cancel the bath, cancel the oysters, we're going on the next plane home. Uh, and for the first time, he was actually really happy about that. He was looking forward to the bath and the oysters, but the plane looked better. Yeah, I think that that's... Um, I'm glad that you sort of captured that, Duncan, or, or, or chose to kind of depict that and, and let um, include that in your book because I feel like they were def definitely oft overlooked and undervalued or under... Yeah, nice the crew were forgotten, and there's a couple of the lawyers who work for uh, the Siemens uh, unions and such and were telling me as well. Um, at the same time, the New South Wales Police Force have quite reasonably been tasked 
go and do an investigation, which is curious enough, we haven't got a result yet on, to actually investigate how it all happened. Mm. So some of the lawyers are quite apprehensive because if you're interviewing people on board and it is potentially a criminal action at the worst, uh, it may not end up that way, there's a certain issue as to whether or not they been involved with that legal representation and these poor buggers weren't getting that either. Mm. So their rights were not being squashed, but there was questions whether they were being treated as fairly and even as it should have been. So it was a really complex situation on board with the added bonus of the police investigation on top of all that. Um, I presume that this will end up at the New South Wales coroners at some stage because deaths have occurred and how that happened, they need to investigate fully. So hopefully the coppers will be doing their report to the coroner fairly shortly. Yeah, that is still going on. But with the special special inquiry into the Ruby Princess that was also launched, and I think that uh, the commissioner or the lead investigator for that was Brett Walker, Brett Walker and yep. his findings. So th- I wanted you to give a little bit of a brief overview about that because I felt that some of the people that were called to, to give us evidence, there was some that I was surprised that weren't, uh, well, I don't know, just logistically they couldn't, but then I thought that maybe they could, even if they had to do so through Zoom or something, because obviously um, Dr. Wartsdorf managed to. So I was wondering as to like who you thought was weird that they didn't uh, weren't compelled to kind of give evidence or testimony. Like wasn't the captain not? Yeah, that captain was the one that jumped out at me. He he was just not called. Mm. And the ship, ship departed. I think Dr. Von Wotzdorf was called. Um, one of the, there's a lot of captains on board. Um, so one, one of the captain had lots of, one of the captains on board was called and didn't know much. And the bloke who runs the hotel side of it, uh, he was also called. Um, the captain himself never made it to the witness. I don't know why. No one's ever explained that. But um, I would have been fascinated to see what he had to say. Um, and then the ship sailed literally. The, and it was curious. The commission inquiry was actually scheduled to start some days later or maybe a week or so later. They had to bring it forward dramatically because the Ruby Princess also got the green light to sail well before the commission started. So it was a bit of a mad rush to actually get the commission put together and get the questions researched and asked before the ship sailed out the door. Um, impeded even further because for some reason the audio-visual link was absolutely bloody appalling. Mm. Uh, I think poor old Brent Walker was tearing his hair out at one stage because we just couldn't. The questions were dropping out, answers were dropping out, the whole thing had dropped out. It became an exercise in extraordinary frustration. I think that may have been one of the reasons why they just didn't persevere with trying to get a few more on board as well. They did get a lot of records beforehand. They moved very, very quickly. And I think that was may have been also one of the challenges that affected witness selection if you just can't talk to them. Um, I remember reading it, watching some of them. This driving everyone bananas. Um, which is unusual because audio-visual normally works so well in New South Wales these days, but the Ruby Princess was an anomaly. I don't know whether being up beside a silo in um, Wollongong might have had some impact on it as well by accident. It might have been a bonus. Who knows? Maybe it was like the, the tantamount to the, back in the day, the magic tap, the disappearance of that conspiracy theory there to float by, Duncan. Maybe, maybe that was what was causing it. No, I joke. I kid. Um, look... I wanted. I think that there was one point. I think this was your words, but it was a good summation of kind of what I thought, what I thought would be good for a prelude into a precursor to you describing sort of what the you thought the gist of the findings were for the special inquiry. 
but uh, good onshore policies didn't include clear and cohesive communications. And I think this sort of harkens back to what we were touching on before. And I wondered if that's what you kind of thought was the, the crux of what the findings were, is that yeah. there might have been some good yeah. policies. You go. Yeah, Walker's, Walker's charge was pretty much to find out what happened that night, where it went wrong, not to apportion blame and not to suggest prosecutions. He's just their really cold forensic assessment. Go through it all, see what screwed up and say, congratulations, this is where it went wrong. Follow-up is for someone else, which would include the police investigation and the coroner's inquest when that happens. Um, yeah, and he came down to exactly what we are just discussing, what they found in the Commission of Inquiry was that this cascade of failures throughout. Um, the Commission of Inquiry wasn't tasked to actually say, well, you know, sailing on the 8th of March was probably one of the worst ideas you could have ever had. Their terms of efforts were to find out what happened when the ship came in that day on the uh, was it 19th of March or whatever it was, on that final day. Find out what went wrong. Where are our systems working? And let's see, you know, the involvement in part of Border Force, the biosecurity people in Canberra, New South Wales Health, New South Wales Ports, um, the ship owners themselves. Find out precisely what happened, clear the clutter out of the way and work out precisely where it went wrong, which Brett Walker and uh, his counsel assisting Richard Beasley did beautifully. Um, and it was sometimes a very aggressive inquiry. Uh, a couple of witnesses did burst into tears. And I think Scott Morrison went off the deep end saying he thought it was a bit unreasonable. And I would suggest to the dear Prime Minister that he's obviously never been to court before because it wasn't unreasonable. He, Walker and Beasley wanted an answer and they weren't getting them. So you can't obfuscate the Commission inquiry. It's not like being on the insiders on a Sunday morning trying to dart and weave around questions. You've got to answer the bloody things. The big bloke on the bench wants to know. And you can't sort of, you can't you know, repeat, repeat this dogma that they go through in political interviews you've actually got to tell the bloody truth so i don't think the witnesses were well prepared and they certainly had never been to court before but look at most of them so it was interesting to watch walker's just absolutely rapier like cutting to the top. it was interesting to watch i quite enjoyed it i didn't think he was all I, I always knew he was good i didn't think he was that good until i watched this and i thought here's a bloke who really knows what he's doing what about Richard Beasley, who is one of our better crime writers and a very entertaining chap as well. What about the summation of, of that where I think you mentioned as well that you, you noticed that Carnival sort of uh, seemingly slipped through the, the commission or the findings of, of that. There wasn't sort of all that yeah, hard the line pressure. Yeah, the task was very much to focus on the government involvement. Carnival mm. uh, get their comeuppance elsewhere. Um, it was very, very much on to see where the New South Wales had where we got it right, where we got it wrong, and very much to make sure that that gave them the groundwork to not stuff it up anywhere else. Mm. Um, and most of the government organisations here were well prepared, but it's like that old, old uh, saying, you know, the best preparations don't last after the first opening shot. And that's roughly what happened here. We had, we actually had good work in Melbourne. New South Wales have done a great job on the, when the Ruby Princess came in on the 8th of March, but on the 19th, it went to hell in the handbasket fast. Let's make sure it doesn't happen again. Let's make sure all the organisations are working in sync with each other so they know how to communicate. They don't make mistakes. Those oversights don't happen again. A bit too late for the Ruby Princess, but if we're going to have any future problems, I suspect that they've learned a lesson. They learned it the hard way. 
So you do think that, Duncan, you think that if, God forbid, if this ever sort of happened again, then lessons have been learned, communication has now been properly put in place or the importance of it? Yeah, yeah. all the people acting insane, and one of the issues, and it happens so much in both government and corporate life, is that while you're well prepared for a problem, you tend to act in a silo. You know, mm. we don't talk to these people for our own plans. What this has done, and I think what Walker is in his summations, um, puts forward is that this silo mentality doesn't work. We all actually have to talk to each other. We have to be cohesive in our approach, um, which means, you know, ports. Uh, one glaring thing about it that always goes to me is the first person to step on board those ships when they come into Australian waters is a pilot to mm. guide the ship in the harbour. Um, if the cruise company hasn't been, or any, any form of shipping company, hasn't exactly been fulsome in their disclosures, this bloke could be walking into anything. But his people don't know about it because health haven't communicated with them, blah, blah, blah. No one's tied the whole thing together and said, congratulations, the ship's coming in. The package is complete. Everyone knows what they've got to do. It comes in. We all act together. And I think that's what this experience in the Commission of Inquiry has rammed home very quickly, that there is a disparate team of people that need to work together effectively. Otherwise, it's going to, you run the risk of further problems, and we just can't afford that stuff anymore. Absolutely not. What about, what about Carnival? Do you think that these, because these sort of class action lawsuits, they, they, they sort of have a tendency to kind of go for... For lifetimes or decades do you think that that's going to be pretty typical here that's what's going to potentially happen it's going to go on for the next 10 20 30 years yeah I, as i said earlier i'd be absolutely delighted if carnival said yeah we staffed up yeah we shouldn't have sent the ship out that day yeah where there's been a confluence of problems on board we just weren't up to the game mm. uh, we betrayed the trust of our long-standing passengers and you know this is what we'll do for you just get it settled get it settled so have everyone been Lawyers tend not to like settling until they absolutely have. And for some, it's, it's, it's also quite cruelly a game of attrition. That may not be the case here, but some court cases go on and on. Hope that the, hope that the people involved will drop it because it just gets too bloody hard. Um, I hope Carnival to decide to take a compassionate view and try and settle it with these people. People have been brutalised. They've lost friends. They've lost partners. They've had some of debilitating injuries. There's a, a woman I spoke to, Tracy Temple. Um, she's a very fascinating person. I like her a lot. Instantly, you like her. No smart, no bullshit straight down the line. We're having a chat about it, and she said, yeah, yeah we got off the boat, and we went up, to, went up to Queensland, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, a year later, I'm still suffering from the after effects of it. I've got this, that, and the other. And just in the middle of the conversation, she said, yeah, I was always a bit really careful about it because I actually had a double transplant some years ago. So I'm really mindful of my health. Um, so she's taken it stoically, but you know, 12 months down the track, she's still got lingering effects, as has her mother. So these people are going to have that for years. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it would be lovely to think that the company would decide in the interest of goodwill and compassion that they would probably settle these things. But... Hopefully that will happen. It hasn't yet. I think they've been in train now. I think they kicked off in about August of last year. And, of course, in litigious America, um, they're going hell for leather as well. It would, be, it would be nice to see. I mean, particularly, if, for example, a couple of years ago, you picked up a $90 million bonus. Uh, you might like to spread some of that around the people just to quieten them. 100 grand each, might be happy with that. Wouldn't make a big dent. But I don't think that's how lawyers and corporates work. No. 
So what about lastly, broadly then, do you think that because of this, because of the pandemic COVID-19, do you think that there might be some of this sort of like pervasive all encompassing change in or reform to the practices of the cruising industry? Do you think any lessons are going to be learned? We've talked a little bit about teachings not being learned or lessons not being learned. Yeah, I'm a dreadful optimist and I hope that we'll actually change the corporate culture. I mean, we come, as you rightly point out, we had a corporate culture with the environment that wasn't exactly conducive to learning. Again, a lot of talk about what we've done, but show me what you've done. Mm. And that's what a judge in Florida will be asking fairly shortly at Carnival. Um, I hope they do learn. I mean, God knows they've had enough brushes with viruses over the years. And it was uh, one of the lawyers I spoke to in Florida said something that I was pretty compelling. He said to me, with a norovirus, you just get a case of the shits and walk off with that. With the coronavirus, chances are you'll live in a box. Mm. I thought, eesh. But so hopefully they will learn. I mean, ultimately, they're decent people. They have a, a rough job. They've got to make sure you're safe on the high seas, and they have to deal with so many problems. With 2,700 passengers, there's going to be a lot of issues. But, you know, just basic common sense. Do we sail if there's, an, if there's a pandemic? Do we sail if there are viruses sweeping around and if we do sail and things start going pear-shaped on board, let's make sure everyone knows precisely what's going on and that the authorities on shore are ready to deal with this the moment the rope hits the dock. That would be nice to see. On the flip side of all that, um, I've got, I don't know what these stats are, but I've just going back to chat to people, I'm getting about 50-50 of, I'll never set foot in a boat again, or the other 50% saying, we can't wait to get back mm. on board. That was the problem, but they'll fix it for us. So there's that large amount of passion for cruising and residual loyalty to the cruise lines as well that's been built up over the good times. So uh, I think the cruise industry will bounce back fairly hard. Mm. I hope it bounces back a lot better. Good point to leave it on there. So look, Duncan, thank you so much for talking to me. I really enjoyed your book. I found it a fascinating read. It was something that did intrigue me. And obviously I've been following the case and the coverage, uh, media coverage, but uh, nothing had been put into this sort of palatable sort of book form. So thank you for that. It was a great read. Hey, absolute pleasure. So everyone, that was Duncan McNabb talking to me about his excellent book, The Ruby Princess, which I can't recommend enough. Go and get a copy of from the good folks of Pam McMillan. Naturally in the bio slash description of this particular episode, I will put the link to Pam McMillan's site there with Duncan McNabb so you can get a copy hot in your little hands there. So huge thanks again to Duncan McNabb, The Rude Princess. Really easy guy to talk to. He had that good balance of kind of um, journalistic professionalism and that larrikin sense of humor I found anyway. I really enjoyed talking to him. Uh, yes, but uh, thank you so much to you now for listening to this episode and all others for following them. I love seeing the, as I like to coin it, or as I termed it, the ever proliferating amount of listeners that's going on, particularly the ones that are going back to the very, uh, the very most humble of, of origins there, listening to those days when I hadn't even figured out, finagled how to, to record properly on Zoom yet. And I was doing um, interviews via, via the phone, uh, kind of, uh, kind of, set it up so that there was a stack of books and then there's a little bit of behind the scenes for you so you can know how the magic happened. So I used to set up in the first few interviews, I set up a stack of books and then I'd put the phone on loudspeaker and then the mic would pick up obviously both the entire conversation. So it wasn't the best method, but you know, those were early days. I was a fledgling 
uh, intrepid young Sam that was learning uh, the ropes of podcasting. But yeah, so things have come so far since then. And I'm like, I'd like to think that they're going to continue to progress along nicely as they have been. So the only way that that, that can really continue to happen, aside from me continuing to endeavor to interview as many cool people, interesting people as creative types and assorted um, distinguished people and luminaries as I can, is that you listen and you follow and you tell people about it and you continue to do that because I can sense that you have been doing that and I'm very grateful. So can assure you've got a whole lot more interviews coming up. I'll keep intermittently doing my little videos as well, uh, posting them on Instagram and Facebook and the like, notifying you of uh, upcoming guests every so often. But yeah, in the interim, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Thank you so much for continuing to listen to the back catalogue there. And I want you all to have a lovely, magical day. I myself am seeing Hamilton this evening. So I am, uh, as you can probably glean from the tone of my voice and its inflection, incredibly excited. And I hope that you will have a similarly excellent Friday evening. Thank you.